Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off On the road, let's travel, never looking back Okay, so Kat Cole is here um, She's the president of many brands Including my favorite brand of all time Cinnabon <laughs> Did I get that correct? Is that true? Or am I just getting, getting excited about it? That's right Okay. And yeah, so give people kind of like, I don't know, like the two minute summary, like who are you? Why should people be excited to listen to this? I like to let people sell themselves because A, you'll do it better than me. And B, most people are really afraid of bragging. And I'm like, no, 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 this is the time to brag for two minutes. Just brag and then we'll be humble uh, the rest of the time. But for two minutes, flex, tell people why they flex should Flex it up. Yeah, flex. Exactly. Uh, so I run a company as president and COO called Focus Brands, four to five billion in global consumer product sales, just under 7,000 units, 60 countries, seven food brands that people know and love, Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, Carvel, Jamba Juice, Moe's Southwest Grill, McAllister's, and Schlotzky's. The business grows by acquisition, so we're constantly looking for new brands that are big enough to make sense in our portfolio, but have enough upside potential in multi-channel, retail, franchise, CPG growth. Uh, to bring them in and apply all of our strengths to those brands to build them over time. So two two questions. Okay, three. What's your favorite Cinnabon? Let's start with that. I love the Cinnabon Mini Bon. It's not mini because the classic is giant. So it's just like, it's more normal, <laughs> normal sized. Bon. <laughs> normal Bon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you won't hate yourself later, Bon. Um, That's right. Okay, so... Second, do you guys have uh, not? So I see all the food brands. Do you guys do non-food brands? Or are you specifically focused in the food? Category? All food, all food, and franchising as the core legacy business, and then even better if it's extendable into other licensed formats in grocery products, and and even better if it can port around the world. Gotcha. And are you guys public or this is a private company? Private equity owned. Private equity. Okay, gotcha. Um, okay, so you're a baller. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> how did you get here? Are you kind of like, I worked my way up from mail clerk for you know 20 years and now I'm the president COO? Or did you have some other career and you kind of sidestepped into this? How did you get where no, you are? Oh, it was kind of like the great poet Drake started at the bottom. <laughs> now I'm here. I, I am one of those stories. So I started out as a hostess and a waitress when I was 17, 18 years old at Hooters restaurants, putting myself through college, first person in my family to get into college, grew up the child of a single parent, alcoholic father, helped raise my sisters. Um, and so I just had to you know, work to pay for school. And I was the first person to get into school. And so everybody was really excited. And then something really crazy happened. Uh, Hooters happened to be growing around the world uh, at the time that I was a waitress. And I was asked to be a part of the training team that would go launch the franchise on different continents around okay. the world. And so I said, yes, I started doing that. Australia, then Central America, South America, Asia. I did that so much. I was traveling. I had to be in these countries for 20 to 40 days to launch the franchise. I very quickly moved from being on the team to leading the teams. And by the time I was 20, I had opened up the franchise uh, on most continents and was failing college because I was never there. So I dropped out right. of school uh, <laughs> before I got my two-year degree. Luckily, since the company was growing, there were many corporate job opportunities for people with my experience in the company. And so I moved to Atlanta from Jacksonville and took my first corporate gig uh, with a paycheck instead of cash and dips and, right. <laughs> uh, and, and found my way into the professional world. And, and again, as the company grew, I grew. I was vice president of that company when I was 26, uh, while wow. they were doing seven to 800 million in revenue, 
uh, stayed with that executive team, all kinds of really interesting things during that executive tenure that we could double click on later, uh, started my humanitarian work in Eastern Africa, did a lot of nonprofit leadership that gave me some really cool parallel leadership experiences that allowed me to be just a better leader at a younger age than many people, right. because I was leading my, like my day gig, my nonprofit on the side, humanitarian work. And, um, Eventually, when I was 31, well, before that, went back to school. I have my master's without having a bachelor's. So uh, I went through an MBA program nights and weekends. It is allowed. It is rare but possible. And that's the, the story of my life, rare but possible. And uh, and then became the president of Cinnabon and helped turn that around out of the recession. And again, as that company grew, I grew every three years. I've had a, a different and larger gig and now oversee all the business. Okay, that's amazing. So we, I, I did tell you when you came on, I was like, we're going to talk ideas. Yeah. Because uh, I try to warn everyone because whenever some legit guest comes on, they're just like, cool, you're just going to ask me about me. And then I already know that story, so I don't need to prep. And I just go on the show. For sure. And, and then I they really show up and I'm like, the heads up. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you know, what are, you know, what are some cool things you're seeing? Tell me about the future, not your past. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wait, what the hell is this? So I gave you the idea, but I got to. I got to ask you some questions about your past because that was <laughs> okay. Uh, but I want to get to the ideas because I really I know. We, we very excited about them. <laughs> we will do the. I'm actually going to look at the clock right now. I'm going to okay. make sure that I, I I stop myself at some point. But uh, I have two questions for you. So the first one is, you come from such a non traditional background. Mm-hmm. You get into these leadership roles. One thing a lot of people feel is what they call like imposter syndrome, mm. where you're like okay, they gave me the keys to this car. Do I know how to drive? And like, you know, do I really know what the hell I'm doing? And like um, some people, I've I've met two different types of people, people who felt that and then they sort of, you know, danced with it and overcame it in some way. And I found other people who, I've met other people who are like, I, you know what, I understand that, but I've literally, I never felt that way. So I'm just curious, when you were like, okay, it sounds like you dropped out of a two-year college, right? So you dropped out of a community college and now you're, you know, 25, 26 years old, you're VP of, you know, a, a multi, multi hundred million dollar brand. Did you have those feelings or was that not something that registered for you? Kind of a mixed bag. Um, I love that you've talked to people that have both responses. Um, right. For me, the way a version of that showed up, when people talk about imposter syndrome, I've found that some are talking about slightly nuanced, different experiences. Like one is just this, this self-talk I don't deserve to be here. You know, right. do they do they think I don't deserve to be here? Is everybody looking at me like what is she <laughs> doing here? Right. So there's that worry, that internal talk. But then there's another version that was more what I experienced. So that first version I haven't experienced, but the the version that I've experienced is an over-indexing on humility and curiosity at times when I really needed to pull forward more courage and confidence. And I would ask myself in my head, because I respected the people I was now a peer of so much who in the early days, they had been in business longer than I'd been alive. Literally, I was a 26 year old executive and they were in their 50s and 60s. They had worked for 30 years. And so there was something in my head that whether it was caused by them or not, that made me ask, who am I to question them? You know, it was, it's, right. it comes from a place of deep respect. Yes. And there were times where I had the humility to ask that question, but I should have had more courage to answer it. And the answer is, you are the vice president overseeing these functions. And if you don't ask these questions, no one will. And I learned very quickly because I had so much responsibility at such a young age when I did not use my voice when I had a seat that I would later regret it. Um, and whether that was bringing up something that was supposed to be what I was there to advocate for a particular stakeholder group, or just an idea that I had that could have saved us a ton of money or made us a ton of money or helped do something better. And I just held back because I thought, again, who am I to kind of wedge that into these guys, historically guys, um, discussion. And I, I always regretted it. And so I learned from that pain, from that regret um, that I shouldn't over-index on humility. Humility's good, but I need to pair it with confidence and courage so that I'm always right. showing up in the way that I should. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Like, it's the, it's the classic thing. Like, your strength is always also your weakness, depending on the context. And so if you, um, 
if you over-index on any one thing, whether it's confidence, that's right. confidence becomes arrogance in the that's wrong right. context. <laughs> uh, if it's humility, humility becomes, you know, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but sort of that that mousy feeling where you didn't step up and you didn't do the thing that you were trying to be nice. And that's actually right. the nicest thing would have been to step up um, and say something. And uh, I'll share a little story of mine that that's sort of similar. So um, I... I started my career as a as, as a entrepreneur. I can't even call it a career. I was a college kid. I thought I was going to go to med school, and then I had this idea to start a sushi restaurant. And I went and decided I'm going to build the Chipotle of sushi. What? And so, yeah, I, I come from the quick serve kind of background. That was the very first thing I did, um, and I got the confidence to do it. I think I've told the story once before, but I got the confidence to do it because I took this class at my university called Getting Rich. It was my senior year. I had done all my required. That was classes. the name of the class. That was the name of the class. And it was it was actually really funny. It was taught by this woman, Lisa Keister, who changed my life. She, I, I should email her and tell her she changed my life. She had graduated and she had uh, graduated with a degree in Mandarin. And all her friends were like going to you know become bankers, consultants, lawyers. They knew what they were doing. They were on that track, that pre-approved track of like, this is what a good career looks like. And they were like, this is you know, 20 years ago. They're like, oh, what are you going to do with this Mandarin degree? What the hell is that? You know, um, and she was like, I don't know, but like, I bet I could find a job in China. Like if I, if I could speak Chinese, I even I can go. And so she went over there and she found um, a great career, basically bridging companies in China with who wanted to do business with the West. And she was like, I could speak both languages. I was a friendly face. I could make it happen. And so she makes a killing uh, by 22, 23. She um, comes back to the States. She invests it all in the dot-com boom because she's like, oh, the internet, this is a great thing. And invests it all. It gets this huge run up fortunately decides like, you know what? I want to buy a house and I want to like change things up, pulls it all out right before the crash. So she avoids the crash, you know, not because of some genius, but then invested on real estate. So then from 2001 to 2006, she's in real estate, which is also on this huge run up. And uh, then she takes it out by 30. She's retired. She's married with the, you know, to the man of her dreams and she's done it all. And she's like, what do I want to do now? So she's like, man, everything that helped me, you know, succeed in life, I didn't learn in school. So she decided to like, you know, uh, go back to the university that she went to, which is Duke, which is where I went. And she decided to become a professor and teach the class she wished she had. Uh, and she she named it Getting Rich because she's like, I know this will attract the type of person I want. And it's not going to be a class about getting rich. It's going to be a little bit about personal finance. So you learn a little bit about the way money works. And then every class, I'm going to bring in a speaker, like someone like you who would come in and say, hey, here's my path. Here's how I stumbled into success. Like I didn't. I didn't have some magic clarity when I got started. I just sort of did one thing and then the next thing. And then eventually I figured it all out uh, and I took the road less traveled. So anyways, I heard that and that's when I was like, oh, shit, these people who are telling their story about you know starting a T-shirt company or you know becoming the vice president of JP Morgan, they all said the same thing, which was like, just as clueless as you back when I was 20 years old and um, just started following my nose of the most interesting thing. Tried to do a great job of it, and whether I succeeded or failed up, this is America. It's amazing. You can even fail, and, and you you go up. And so, um, and they were like, "Look, at the end of the day, I'm the one hiring people. <laughs> you know, so I'll tell you what I look for in a resume. Everybody's got the same degree. Uh, you know, every, you know, I go down to the bottom of the resume where it says like other, and I try to figure out, do you have anything to offer me? Any other experiences in your life that are novel or different? Um, because that's what separates you from the other stack and the other people in the stack of papers." So anyways, long story, but I'm going to get to the part that was re- relevant to what you said, which was I do a couple startups. I fail essentially with them, um, like minor success, but failure really. And then uh, I decide, okay, I'm coming to Silicon Valley. That's where I want to be. And I join uh, this idea lab started by this guy, Michael Birch, who had um, him and his wife had built multiple companies, multiple successes. And now they were sort of like, well, we're billionaires, but we still want to create new startup, new startup ideas. But now we don't need investors. We'll do it on our own terms. So they hmm. they buy this pimped out office in San Francisco. They smash together seven condos and create their dream office um, out of that. And then they hire up a team of 20 of the smartest engineers. And they're like, great. We own this whole thing. You all own equity in any project we do. It's like sort of communism for startups. And um you know, we're going to build our, our own ventures. And so I joined him just to work for him. And hmm. I I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I knew two things. One was um, I, I had this idea was how do I get 20 years of experience in the next four? Kind of like what you were saying, which was like mm-hmm. by throwing yourself in the fire and being like, oh, you raise your hand, you raise totally. your hand. Like, Compressed I'll, time. I'll, I'll go launch, you know, our Australia business or wherever. Uh, like you will go learn a lot more that way. 
So that's why I joined his startup lab because I was like, oh, a lab has multiple ideas. I will get multiple reps rather than just focusing on one thing. And uh, I'll learn from this guy who's done it before. So I'll get a bunch of experience just sitting next to him every day. And that's what happened. But along the way, he emailed me one day and he was like, hey, um, meet me at this coffee shop uh, today. Don't come to work. Meet me at this coffee shop. You know, there's something I like to discuss. And I was like, you know, six months into the job and I was like, oh shit, I'm getting fired. Like I heard this is what happens. They take you off site and they sort of shoot you where nobody could see you. And, um, you know, cause I had been changing a whole bunch of things. I had been doing the thing you said, which was like, if I saw something that didn't make sense to me, I would just say it didn't make sense. And I'd change it without even asking for permission. And I was like, I probably overstepped and, hmm. uh, okay, whatever. Lesson learned. I told my mom, I was like, I'll be home for lunch. Uh, I'm probably getting fired today. And I, I go meet this guy and his wife. And he was basically like, is the exact opposite. He was like, you know, uh, he's like every single person I ever hired at this lab, 20 people I hired. And I said, you know, make of this what you want, you know, whatever you make of this is what your experience will be. He's like, I told all of them that. And then what everyone does is they go and they sit at their desk and they wait to be told what to do. And they just do what they think their job title is. And he's like, we hired you as product manager, but you've been acting like the CEO of this, this lab. And I want to make you the CEO. I want to give you my job and I'll, I'll move to the board and you run this, this thing. And I was 24 years old. And in that moment, I had this fear, like kind of what you were talking about, the, the nuance number one that you mentioned. And the fear I had was, and I asked him this, and this is how I got over the fear. I asked him, I was like, you know, I'm the youngest person at the company. I'm 24. People, I'm the, I've been here the least long. I've only been here for six months. Um, are other people going to be okay with this? Like, I get that you're crazy, but like, ultimately you're going to leave and I'm going to be the one standing in front of them. And if they don't respect me, I'm screwed. Um, and he told me this, he gave me this anecdote and I think, I honestly think he made this up, uh, but it worked. It totally made me feel great, which was, he goes, he goes, I talked to, you know, these four leaders of the, of the team, you know, um, already I asked them how they feel about this. They all were supportive. In fact, you know, Paul called me yesterday and was like, dude, are you making this transition yet? Like, what's the holdup? And, and that just gave me this like wind in my sails that I was like, oh, they want me to lead. And then I never questioned it again. And now looking back, I'm like, I think you might've made that shit up. That might've been like totally uh, not true, but it was a real gift that he gave me. And so for anybody out there who's putting somebody in a position where, you know, they're punching a little bit above their weight, they're, they're not, you know, sort of technically on the resume qualified to do this. Um, Give them that gift of like, people want you to lead. They trust you uh, in some way, somehow. It, it really changed my experience. It sounds like uh, for you, you you had that uh, on your own. So, All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Tempo. Tempo.fit is the website. I actually use this. I've used this for a few months now. And it's this machine that has a touch screen and this 3D sensor. And what it does is they give you weights, so like 115 pounds in weights. And it's for strength training. So what it is, is it measures your body and it sees how much weight you're lifting. It sees how many reps you're doing and how much effort you're putting in, what your heart rate is. It's pretty amazing. And then you have a coach on screen walking you through what to lift, how many to lift, what workout to do, whether you want to do a 20-minute, 10-minute, 50-minute workout. It's pretty amazing. But the best part is the leaderboard. The other stuff, all the features that they have, that's cool. But I'm obsessed with the leaderboard because it measures how many reps you're doing and how much volume you're doing. And you can compete with other people who have taken the same class. So it's made me want to work harder, lift more weight, or have more endurance. It's just pretty freaking fun. And the whole point of working hard is to have money so you can spend it on stuff that will make you live longer. And this product tempo, it checks that box for me. So they're our sponsor today. If you use the code SAM100, so that's the promo code SAM100, you'll get $100 off. So tempo.fit is the URL. And SAM100, one word, you'll get $100 off. So check it out. I use it. If you look me up on Twitter, you'll see I'm always filming videos where I'm talking to that company saying I'm trying to crush their employees on the leaderboard because I actually love this thing and I, and I use it all the time. So check it out. Anyways, I don't know why I made this all about me, but I, I felt <laughs> compelled to tell you that story. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, we're getting close to the idea time. Tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah, let me tell you about my ideas now. Um Let's do the ideas. So I asked you, the homework was one to three ideas. You might've exceeded that. I don't know. Um, and let me ask you, are you an idea person? Do you like constantly oh, have yeah. ideas and oh, yeah. stuff? Where do you capture them? Or do you write them on your phone or notes phone. app or something? Yeah. Phone, voice notes. Um, and do you plan to do anything with these or you just got to like get it off your chest? I am very good about socializing ideas as soon as I have them. Okay. So I 
just put them out there. Even if it's like, oh, maybe I could actually do something with this. If somebody else moves faster on it, cool. If they don't, cool. Like, I, and you just tweet it out. I, or I just, what? I just talk it out. I'll just yeah. talk with a friend. I have so many creative friends and entre- people in the entrepreneurial world, and um, uh, so yeah, I just share. I, I was thinking about this. Wouldn't it be great if this existed? Right. Would you use this if this existed? So give um, me one of them. What's what's on your mind? Okay, one that I actually started. This was I don't know six nine months ago started um, messaging a few investor friends and people who I know are passionate about this topic and they loved the idea, I got busy. (laughs) So maybe somebody will do something with this. So an app uh, that lets me enter all the life decisions that I want to enter and evaluate and measure my real environmental impact. So the shampoo I buy, the method of transportation I have, my food choices, and I want to score, right? It's just for me. Right. And then if there's a, enough, if there are enough people participating, enough data points, it can kind of benchmark by region, by different demographic, if I opt in to show that, because there is so much greenwashing that right. there are things that are promoted or advertised as better for the planet that when I've had occasion to work with experts or go deep into the research of the entire value chain, it's actually not. And there, you know, there are websites right now that rank products in this way. Um, so EWG, you know, whatever version it's become now where you can put in your SKU, scan right. the barcode, and it'll tell you if it's like green, yellow, or red, or if it's good, fair, bad, or horrible, um, for for the planet or if it's got concerning ingredients for your body so a like a really souped up version of that where it's easy to click transportation home utilities food whatever it is and i put it in and then i can see how the choices i make um add value to the planet or are hurting and for me it's just about driving more consciousness and then of course you could gamify it and like do all kinds of things, and it could actually create energy around the growth of companies that really are net better for the planet. So it just feels like there's a lot of good that could come from that. Right. And um, have you made any shifts recently that you're like, oh, I wasn't aware of X, but now I do Y, and uh, it's better for the planet? Have you have you done anything like that? Um, well, I use the, um, the what was formerly branded as the EWG app. Um, that where I can just put products in and it has, you know, both packaging, some packaging measurements as well as more ingredients for the body. And so I've just shifted product choices based on the information in the app. Um, But it's still only covering product purchases, not car, not, you know, transportation and lawn care and home goods and my children's clothing and all the, all the consumption items, all the choices um, that I'm making, I just, I would love that same level of consciousness without having to do all the work of the research and then running into light research and making actually a a decision that's not based on the depth of everything that a product or service actually involves. So it, it doesn't exist. I've looked everywhere. Nothing is this comprehensive. Right. So let me tell you what I like and then I'll tell you what I dislike about it. Maybe you could tell me why I'm wrong. So what I like about it uh, actually is, well, besides the like net good that would come of something like this, uh, what I like about it is that I think you could start this as a quiz. Um, So I've noticed just in trying to make things move on the internet, quizzes are like, I don't know, they're like the bacteria of the internet. They just spread like crazy. And... um, you know, I was telling you about Michael, who was the kind of CEO of the lab. He had launched, a, he got big on a social network. It was like kind of as big as MySpace back in the day, as big as Facebook. And he had launched it with a quiz. And in nine days, he got a million members. Um, back then, that was that was really fast. Like a million yeah. was a lot back then in the internet size. And he had did it with just a quiz called the Best Friends Quiz, which basically uh, was like, how well do you know me? I answer questions about me. And then I send it to you. You get a score of guessing how I, what I would have said. And then I'll do the same back for you. And it was this viral quiz. The, um, the guys who were behind Tickle, I remember, did this with uh, which dog breed are you, right? BuzzFeed did this. And so I think that there's one way to onboard people with this, which is just like 
question, yeah. question, 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 score. And yep. how does that compare to blah, blah, blah. And so you don't even have to make, it doesn't even have to start as a full-fledged, you know, app app. It can be um, something that just collects a whole bunch of people's uh, information and interests mm, around that. their lifestyle choices. So and I like quizzes. maybe even makes them more energized about a deeper engagement on the platform to enter and things like that. Exactly. So I love that it can be formatted as a quiz, as a starting point, as a wedge. And then the part that I dislike is I, I the one thing about these quizzes that works well is when you get a result that you like. <laughs> so it says something good about you. My fear would be, uh, would people end up getting bad news or just basically like, I feel like we're all screwing up the planet and we all have pretty like consumptuous lifestyles, if that's a word. And I don't know anyone who's going to score well on this. And so I think you can get a bunch of people to like, would people opt into doing something that results in them feeling somewhat guilty? I'd like to think yes, because then they'll change. But I think what will end up happening is people will avoid it just like they avoid stepping on the scale if they know they're getting out of, you know, overweight or whatever. Yeah. And so, I, so that's I my think fear. That's, my that's fear a really interesting it. point. I'm a, such a, a geek around like psychological models and human behavior. And I just think humans are magic and fascinating. Right. Um, and so I love where you're going with that. I, my thinking, and I haven't thought about this too deeply beyond sharing it with some, um, you know, fellow um, fellow thinkers around making better decisions for the planet who happen to be investors or very entrepreneurial. Um, my thinking is that one, I think you're right, people already know it's bad. And, right. <laughs> and that's different, right? Because sometimes people don't want to get bad news when it conflicts with how good they think they already are. Right. And this is like, I know I'm bad and I actually want to get better. It's why I'm using it. And so tell me how bad I am, (laughs) you know, give me and, and, or I'm already this conscious. I'm going to show you that I'm actually on a journey. I'm yellow, not red, but my, my teenage son or my partner or my friend Um, I really want to get them into this or my mom or my dad, I'm trying to get them to make better choices. And, um, and maybe it's not just that it's red, yellow, green, but it actually in some way using psychology communicates what is actually bad about that. Like if this continues with this many people around the world, here's what will happen to your grandchildren's climate. Um, Here's what the world looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, something uh, like that. Like, I think the good thing about this is even if a lot of people are in that bucket where they're like, oh, it's bad and I don't want to hear the bad news. Like, for example, my wife is vegan and so she will, you know, if she's talking to her mom, right? Her mom, when her mom was growing up, the vegan wasn't a word. That wasn't a lifestyle. So, you know, she's now in her 60s. She doesn't, she's not going to change to being vegan. Uh, but she loves animals and cares about it. And so when she brings up, my, when my wife brings up this information, I'm like, do you know how that showed up on your plate and do you know what you know how dairy works right do you know how the, how bad these systems are and her mom is just like i don't want to know don't tell me it's just going to ruin my like my day like please don't tell me i'm not ready to change blah 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 but the thing with this is this is a product where everybody it's everybody is the total market right we're all we're all humans on planet earth so even if it's just 5% of the population that actually would opt in to knowing this information um, that's a huge number of people and then they can sort of bring on that next wave of people who are looking to be more conscious uh, and that that will just sort of cascade through the population over time. So maybe my initial thing was it doesn't matter because there's enough people, the total breast market is everybody. So there's enough people who would opt into finding out this information. Um, and then the other sort of um, interesting thing that you brought up was like psychology, right? So one of the guys who taught at... Um, at the school I went to was this guy, Dan Ariely, who's wrote a bunch of books, like Predictably Irrational. He's sort of like the leader in kind of like behavioral economics, pop science. I am familiar, actually, because it's commonly applied in approaches to menu and the food business and sales and things like that. Right. I remember he was saying he was working with Panda Express at one time. They're trying to get people to make healthy choices. And they were trying to figure out how do we how do we label our menu so people make healthy choices? Should we include, you know, this information or what? And the experiment he wanted to try, which I think ultimately didn't work because they didn't implement this, but the experiment he wanted to try was when you walk through the door, there's actually two lines. There's the, I'm um, like, I'm going to treat myself oh. or I'm, I'm going to make a good decision for myself. Oh. Uh, b- both are positive, but it was like, go left or right. And then the menu you see is a different menu and you just only get the options, but you make the choice up front. You don't have to like 
wade through the tasty and then the like maybe healthier options yeah. and try to figure it out. So I don't think that one worked, but he did tell us about one experiment that did work in the psychology realm around this, so around climate. So he was talking about, he's like, why is it that people will buy a Prius or they'll buy an electric car now and then Tesla maybe now, um, but they won't do, they won't like insulate their water heater or something that will have like a, actually quite a big impact. Exactly, exactly. And they, you know, they won't do that, but they'll like, you know, virtue signal in other ways, you know, they'll, they'll recycle a bottle, but they won't change this thing that's actually like a bigger impact. Uh, why do people do that? And so he's like, I th- he's like, I think it's about signaling. I think that there's a, um, mm-hmm. there's the power there's, of optics. Yeah, yeah, the optics. Like you feel good that you are signaling to the world that you do good. And with your in- your water heater, it's in a closet somewhere in your house or your garage or something like that. No one sees it. You don't even see it. And so the motivation to do it is very very low. It's only for the diehards. And so he then they ran this experiment in a neighborhood where they would put a sign in the in the I've, grass. I've read about this. Yeah it, yeah, it had this amazing result. So you put the sign that said like, hey, we upgraded our water heater. and We went clean, clean and green or something. And so you were signaling to everybody that our house, we did the thing. And as you know, in a neighborhood when five houses did it, then everybody felt like, oh, totally. shit, we should, probably, we should probably not be the neighbor who didn't right. do this. It's, I cannot be the jerk that doesn't do this. <laughs> right. And so I, I love that. I, I love that idea um, and how you can apply that into product design. I think it's cool. So, OK, I love this idea. Give me another one. What All else right. you got? Um, so I think there is an opportunity. There's a, there's a theme here of, of impact, but I think there are real business opportunities here and, and they're just needed entities and Kat, activities. We get it. You're a good person. You're a good person. We, we understand. <laughs> okay. Um, so next is, uh, food business like restaurants. So think, you know, the whole restaurant world's being blown up right now, right? Like right sizing of retail, um, independent restaurateurs, casual dining, fine dining being heavily disrupted uh, alongside other food trends. So first I'm thinking of um, starting kind of the, the modern food chain, the unfranchised franchise uh, okay. that is about healthy food but food as pharmacy, where you go in, you get a diagnosis in some way from some network of doctors that take your blood right. tests and do all these things and are like, this, these are the types of things you you need to eat menu A. Right. And, um, and then there's a, this chain of restaurants that has menu A, B, C, D, something more fabulously marketed than that, but you get the point. Um, <laughs> and, and it's this like beautiful, delicious, um, place that that ignites the senses that blends the pleasure of food and the functionality of food and very clearly communicates it as food is medicine but it's not just that positioning of healthy it is what i think the future of restaurants really will be which is if you were building one today it would be the best of all worlds it would be part sit down with a lot of outdoor and kind of space built for delivery built for pickup built for takeout and speed um, it would have meal kits to go items that you could pick up. It's a little bit grocery store. It's a little bit convenience store. It's a right. little bit restaurant. It's a lot off premise and yep. production with all the design elements of coming in and out really safely and easily with fully contactless experience. Um, so it's not only the what it sells at scale is a part of the future of food, but it's the how it does it and the routes to market that are not just these old models that have patchworks of some of these channels, like right. start over from ground from zero, scratch. bringing all these things together in one place, make it a franchise so local entrepreneurs, local independent operators can have a part of scaling this future of food uh, and make sure it's at a pricing tier that is low to mid. So it is broadly accessible and not just the aspirational type of product that is typically introduced to the market. That one's not as far off as the first one. And there's little symbol, little signs of it happening in certain markets, but no one's doing it with that much clarity, that much intention at scale. Maybe I will one day post focus brands. Well, I I mean, you can see which industry you're in, you know, (laughs) Uh, so, so I got a couple questions for you. First, what do you think of, um, I'll I'll react to your idea in a second, but I want to know, what do you think of ghost kitchens in general? So, um, one, I I think a delivery only or an off-premise mostly model is going to only continue in popularity 
um, and prominence around the world. The math really only makes sense today in hyper-densely populated areas because you have to have enough delivery-only business only through a, a digital channel right. to warrant the rent and the supportive infrastructure that, and I'm very familiar with what all those are, as you can imagine, the different companies that are doing it, Kitchen United, Cloud Kitchens, all the ones doing it around the world. Um, so, so you've got to really have not only a different marketing engine to market digitally uh, for what are typically impulse purchases. Right. You know, I'm hungry. I want food now. Right. What type do I want? What's going to be fastest? Which brand do I trust? Am I in the mood to experiment? Do I have time to experiment? You know, all this back to psychology, all the psychology that goes on. You've got to market differently and transact differently. So in hyper dense markets, many cities in China, right. um, many cities in India, Kuwait, Manhattan, this has been going on delivery only businesses for decades. It's not right. new. Um, they just also had some customer facing part of their business. And then you looked at it and said, wow, we're paying premium for this real estate. If most of our revenue is going to be delivery, which only makes sense in very dense markets in most cases. Right. And because you need the cost of delivery to be low and you need the time of delivery to be low in order to properly right. batch and keep it efficient, whether you're a third party or a self-delivery person and you've got your three kids driving around on a scooter delivering the food, doesn't matter. Right. The delivery time has to be fast. The radius has to be short. The only way the radius is short is if the density is there. And so right. cloud kitchens are crushing, crushing it. Dark kitchen, in cloud kitchen, whatever you want to call it, in hyper-dense markets. There is a lot of churn in tenants in cloud kitchens in not dense markets. People are excited about it. They're trying right. it and they're going, oh, I only have delivery revenue. And that's not necessarily working for the economics that these companies that are trying to do this at scale right. um, really need to make it work. I think it's all going to work itself out in North America. We are just so behind the rest of the world in delivery-only concepts. I mean, pizza obviously has figured it out for a long time. Right. But the, the whole economics of the model, the digital infrastructure, and they have their own driver that works. So it makes a lot of sense. Other industry sectors are trying to come at it from the outside. Owning your own driver infrastructure is very expensive, competitive, and the insurance alone is something a lot of small businesses can't bear. So using a last mile logistics partner um, like an Uber Eats or a DoorDash in the U.S., which they are they do have big growing parts of their businesses that are last mile only, not yep. marketplace, not front end, but back end. Um, yep. All of those, it's just all kind of the puzzle pieces are coming together. It's all coming together. Yeah. Slowly. They're, they're already like clicked and glued around the world. They're just slowly coming together in the, in the U.S. and they're coming together faster in dense markets. I'm a fan. It's just not as... Um, not as much the, oh yeah, totally. That's the solution today as right. a lot of people think or some of the hype right. I've it's, heard because they clearly a, uh, don't understand the economics, but it's right. getting it's there. A, it's a, it depends. Mm -hmm. uh, is the, yes, is the answer, <laughs> it depends. Right. Asterisk. Right. And for, for you guys, I mean, I can imagine how many locations you have throughout suburban malls and, you know, you know, all across America where you're not going to be in this, this type of hyper density. And what you're saying is that for that, for that, you need uh, a, a very different model than than what you're going to get in you know downtown New York or LA or yeah. San Francisco. Or something. I would say on the other side, however, that some of the brands we have, we are one of the original multi-brand platforms that co-brands and tri-brands. We can put yep. multiple concepts together because they meet different occasions. They're not competitive, but they're complementary and they make sense to be together. So think right. Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, and Jamba, um, yep. or Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, and Carvel. And we can smoosh them together in really tiny spaces. We've been doing it for a long time in airports and malls and urban centers. So that does make it interesting for cloud kitchens in that we can put multiple brands. So I don't have to rely on one brand's revenue stream delivery only to make it work in a cloud kitchen. I can right. actually put three brands together in a pretty small kitchen. Right. But you would need to then take like different on... day parts and then maybe it's got a fighting chance when it's even not as dense. So on the other right. side, there is some opportunity unique to the brands that we have. Right. So, so like on Uber Eats, I don't know if you guys have done this or, or thought about it, but like, you know, one of the problems, let's say I wanted to order 
uh, something and I wanted a pretzel or something and I wanted a Cinnabon uh, or a Jamba Juice with it. I can't do two orders, right? So you kind of need um, either the platform needs to enable you to say this and of that or um, you would have to list as a tr- as that cl- cluster. It's like you can order from a menu and here's the menu because it's actually all one co-located. That's what um, we do. You know, yeah. restaurant. Okay. That, that's, it's the easiest, it's the lowest friction way to use the way the platform is structured without confusing the consumer. So it shows up as an Auntie Anne's location, but right when you pull up the menu, it says, it, that's the problem is it's got to have a lead location, but one, because it, yeah. because the brand shows up in the menu, it does show up in the search. So if right. you search Cinnabon, but Cinnabon's actually co-branded with what was first in Auntie Anne's, you search Cinnabon, it pops up, it says Auntie Anne's, but then it shows you the Cinnabon menu item. And so that's how we do it when we're co-located today. Gotcha. Okay. That, make, that makes sense. So sort of a, a, a little growth hack, a little workaround that you have to do. Uh, that, that's cool. Um, and I also have a different question. So I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll talk about your idea. I, I like the food as pharmacy, food as medicine. I think that's the way the world is going. Um, you know, Somebody sent me this book. I don't know if this book is real or it's you know total fake science, but there's sort of like uh, this old book that's popular called Eat Your Blood Type or something like that. It's oh like, yeah, yeah, it's something like that. So I don't know if that that exact you know method is, is is true, but I think that there's definitely a at the very minimum you can see if somebody's deficient for certain things, and you could recommend foods that will supplement, right? Like so that's a that's a no brainer. Let alone you know what this book says is like hey if you're you know b blood type eat more red meat or whatever i yeah. don't know if that's or if true, it's just like- the anti-inflammatory or the um the the you know build your immune system yes diet or what you know what whatever it is i mean we've got very similar structures on our jamba menu but that's a smoothie yes. chain and it's not a whole end-to-end solution right. and it's still more fun for you wellness than like prescription right. wellness. And so how do you, all right, you're the CEO, COO and president of, of all these food brands. Mm-hmm. You're, obviously, you have all these different locations and COVID comes and COVID, you know, COVID strikes and foot traffic dies and malls close and you know who knows what's going on. So walk us through what's it like to be in that executive chair when this is happening? Mm. Um, how did you approach it? And then, you know, if you made any mistakes, how, what, do you, what do you look back and say, oh, we should have done this sooner or I should have I should have treated this a little differently. So I'm curious how you did that and what, you know, what's that email you send out to the whole whole group? I, I'm just curious how, how that goes. <laughs> you mean the emails everybody's sending me? Um, <laughs> you know, one thing I think it's just important for your listeners we, that we always bring forward our full selves. It just so ha- one, we, we have a lot of businesses in Asia. So we had a little bit of a heads up of what was happening. Gotcha. And uh, Auntie Anne's and Cinnabon are both in Asia. They're mostly in malls there as well. So we had a sense of what that would be like for malls. Malls are only... Um, you know, just over 15% of our business at Focus Brands, but it's a majority of the business for Auntie Anne's. Okay. And so benefit of having a diversified portfolio, but very serious um, impact for one of the brands and then Cinnabon to lesser degree because it's in more areas, but still meaningfully in malls and airports. And airports are just as impacted as, as malls. Yep. And um And so I was in the hospital in the ICU with my then seven-month-old daughter who had um, IVs, feeding tubes, because she had a horrible respiratory virus, and I did as well. We caught it from our toddler, and it was just horrible. Wow. Um, And so here I am in a hospital while there's a nursing shortage because there were no tests. And so basically, if any doctors or nurses exhibited any symptoms, they had to self-quarantine. Right. So there were, I'm dealing with that. And then, you know, working on my phone in the hospital with my mask on, not sure if what I have is what she had because we hadn't, they weren't, hadn't identified it yet. We finally identified it was something called metanumavirus, which is one of the big, bad seasonal viruses. It was not COVID. Um, but right as COVID was hitting, you know, it was already big in Seattle, kind of coming West um, from the West um, across the United States and just a lot of alarmist you know, news coming out and um, very quickly the malls started shutting down. Right. And it started in states that tend to be more progressive and then quickly moved to the rest of the country as more information was shared about how it spread. And I was navigating the period that you just asked about with my child, um, weak, thin, tubes in her nose. We finally got out of ICU. This was mid-March, so really peak, peak hitting us with lack of knowledge. Coming home, having all these conference calls with 
people from all over pulling, my baby was pulling her feeding tube out of her nose, shoving it back in her nose while I'm dealing with this. So the, oh my God. just the, that reminder of we all have full lives even yes. during these times. So then what was it like in addition to that? One, her and her health, you know, her health was the most important thing to me. So it kept everything else a bit more in perspective, which was actually very healthy. Right. Um, then what I, what I'm really proud of both for my leadership and my team and the whole company is that we got crystal clear on the few priorities we had, which was one, protect people, right? Safety of our employees, safety of our managers, safety of our community, like, and whatever that meant, if we were open, that meant safety, extra safety precautions beyond what food businesses already have to do. Um, It meant not asking people to travel or not having them go, even before a lot of these companies started shutting down offices and before travel um, bans were put in place. You know, we were already going down that path. Safety, number one. So preserve health and well-being. The second priority is preserve cash because these businesses are small. Collectively, they're quite large, but independent franchise-owned businesses, I think JP Morgan or one of these banking financial institutions puts out a report every year that basically says the average independent retail operator, operator, including restaurants, has like 14 to 21 days of cash on hand, max. Um, And that is very typical of super small business owners. And so we knew we had to preserve cash. So keep everybody safe. Make sure there's nothing we're asking people to do or uh, that that conflicts with that. Make sure that we're providing any safety precautions, et cetera. Then help them preserve cash. So put a pause on any royalties. Um, put a pause on any advertising fund. Um, uh, make sure that we're negotiating with vendors to help franchisees not be stressed about their near-term obligations while they are wondering what is going to happen. So right. we just, I mean, it was so powerful having that clarity. You know, don't talk to me about anything unless it does unless one of those two, two things. things. Right. Keep people safe, preserve cash. And if it conflicts with either of those, we're not going to do it. And if it does both of those, it's moved to the top of the list. Right. And that was it. So we did that incredibly well. Every communication, every email, every department went to work. I mean, radical focus. Um, then we were thoughtful about the stages in the evolution. So we were amazing at responding to the crisis with heart and with mind. But then things start to normalize and all of a sudden the government starts to respond with yep. help aid packages and every city had a different regulation and it was a spaghetti mess right. of things for the owners, franchisees to navigate. And so then we went to work with every external resource, our own lawyers, our private equity firm, just trying to consolidate guidance and information so that it also de-stressed them and allowed them to make informed decisions. Then PPP comes (laughs) and all of these business owners or these small business owners are trying to figure out, do they qualify? Should they apply? Do they need it? If they do, how do they get in line? Um, and, And it was our job to just guide as much as we could. Right. And and then as it normalized a bit, putting systems in place that allowed them to open. Most of our all, most of our malls are open, um, and most of them are doing more sales than people would think. Um, mainly because not all the food providers are open, and so yes, it's a smaller pie of customers walking through and mall employees, but we're getting a bigger share of that group. Uh, which is great. And in most cases, the mall operators, again, this is a small portion of our total business, um, but the mall operators are running on one shift and not two. So in some cases, short term, they're able to preserve their livelihood and profitability because it's lower sales, but more than people would think, but running it off one shift. So a bit improved margins because of the labor ratios. Um, And the real question is, what's the future? You know, which of these malls are going to get repurposed into something that doesn't make sense for a snack business? Um, Which ones are going to have a long, slow, painful exit? Uh, So which ones are going to close fast? Which ones are going to be a slow road to go away? And which ones actually, because you then will have a redistribution of retail shopping, even if it's less, you know, just like our example of food, there are fewer places for them to go. And in some communities, malls are community centers. It's not just a place to get shoes. And so I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. And so we're helping them navigate 
um, real estate negotiations. You know, what, what, how do you approach a mall landlord with a lease? Do I just wait until it gets really bad and then I have more leverage? Do I try to renegotiate something now so I can plan my business? Um, what happens if it's a large mall developer versus an independent? And so we've moved from crisis response and clarity to helping them navigate unbelievable amounts of information in an unprecedented um, time and uh, way that many people were kind of reaching out to support government and local entities back to, okay, getting back to what is now our new normal. They got to start paying rent. The stores are open. Bills are coming due. Um, some of our brands are doing better than last year's sales because they have drive throughs and curbside and the benefits of the technological investments we made. Right. Um, so it, the other discipline and where I think we, we've been good but it's been a great lesson for me is to keep stepping back and asking, are we exiting one chapter of crisis management and entering into another? You don't want to get right. stuck in a certain type of behavior too long. Yeah, uh, that is great. I'm so glad you shared that. I feel like this is sort of, um, you know, there's a sort of a masterclass in how do you lead into, you know, I don't know if we call it crisis, but I think that's one way to put it. But just in, in general, uh, in in a time of a lot of change and lack of information. And so you have to be like highly adaptable and then you have to be responsible and you have to be humane and all, you know, all the different things you want to be and you're never going to be perfect at it. But uh, I thought you kind of walked everyone through it very well. Crisis um, is my jam. Yeah, stressful. How do you deal with that? That's that's crazy. Um, I'm like, I try to have such an easier life than the life you live. Uh, that is my goal is to have like the, the opposite of that situation, which is like, uh, how do I how do I have the minimal amount of sort of stress and the maximum amount of, you know, fun and impact? <laughs> That's like what I think. Because I used to think I want to run a big company and then we, my company got bought. We got acquired. And so now, you know, Twitch is a 2000 person company and I see what the executive's life is every day and they're great at it. And I think they thrive on it, but I'm looking at them. I'm like, wait, that's what I would get promoted to. Like that's, that's a trap for me. I don't, I don't want that. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm not built for that. It's definitely not what I would want, but it's kind of cool to see different people who you need people who are going to do that. Otherwise who's going to run these systems. For sure. So, uh, you're one of those, one of those special people. And I (laughs) I admire that about you. Um, Cool. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I, we should we should wrap it up. I, I promised you an hour. Um, you know, you're welcome to come on anytime you would like. I, I think you you should be what I call you know a friend of the show. Oh, awesome! I would love to. Seriously, if you got like random topics you want to jam on, I'm so I love you know spider webbing into different industries. My husband's in VC. I've been a part of the startup world for quite some time through right. angel investing and mentoring. I love jamming on brand, you know, talking about brands and how to build brands and what does it really mean? And um, and just the human side. Sounds like you really are into the psychological filter of the world, um, not in a manipulative way, in an understanding way and using it as a resource way. And I am too. So would love to geek out on those topics with you anytime. Right. <laughs> right on. Um, and where should people find you? So is Twitter the best way to connect or what's the best yeah, way? Yeah, Twitter. Um, I'm one of the growing number of people that have a Substack, So you can go on and find my uh, newsletter checking in, just sharing leadership lessons. But Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the places. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> okay. So it's Kat Cole ATL on Twitter. Uh, that's where I follow you. Yeah. Because you're not like corporate drone just saying basic things you talk like a human and you say funny things all the time uh so so i I enjoy you you're a good you're a good follow i Uh, I highly recommend feel the same about you okay cool all right thanks for coming on uh i gotta go to i gotta go nowhere i gotta sit here and click the next zoom thing and then do the next zoom thing which is (laughs) the weird the weird world we live in now Uh, nice to nice to actually finally meet you yeah you. you too